Aaron, I don't know if you're aware about this being from New Jersey, but me being from Southern California, I know firsthand that climate change is real. Okay, yeah, tell that to the Jersey Shore, dude. Like, we got demolished. Yeah, I forget you guys had water. Yeah, a lot more water than you have. Something I forget to think about, you know, considering our, like, 95-degree summers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it gets hot up there, too. The point, the point I'm trying to make is sea levels are rising. Yep. Sea temperatures are rising. All temperatures are rising. Yeah, that's the fundamental problem with global warming. Uh, and it's something we're really seeing on a day-to-day basis. And specifically, we're seeing a lot of these issues with climate change really, uh, you know, come to fruition in a lot of island nations. Uh, so being the great millennials that we are, uh, we are starting a new podcast series <laughs> specifically about climate change. We're calling it Fly on the World. Wait for the sound effect. sound effects. <laughs> Obviously have sound effects. Our budget so high. Our budget is so high. The point of this is we're really going to try to get a lot of different perspectives on climate change and get a lot of different perspectives on, you know, what's really going on in the world. You know, this has been a podcast that's been primarily focused on domestic politics. But the thing is that domestic politics and international politics are conjoined. Um, and you can't really just do a podcast about one without talking about the other. Um, you know, specifically, uh, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in our interview, but we've learned a lot about, you know, the differences between administrations' views on climate change. Uh, you know, President Trump has taken a very different stance on climate change than President Obama, not necessarily denying its existence, uh, but, you know, really uh, taking different regulations and different attitudes towards it, you know, really trying to boost business. Uh, because he sees, and, you know, a lot of the Republican Party sees a lot of these regulations as um, really keeping businesses down. Um, and I think this is a very topical time to release this sort of podcast miniseries, if we can pat ourselves on the back, uh, back for a little bit. <laughs> uh, it just this week and, and last week, uh, President Trump has finished, uh, for the most part, rolling back the major Obama climate regulations, and is also now looking at striking the clean power plan and moving us away from that uh, and, and reinvigorating the coal industry. So, like Christian said, a rapid uh, 180 switch from President Obama's approach to this global issue. So uh, uh, we decided, in conjunction with uh, our amazing partners over at the Caravel, to take a look at some of these uh, issues with climate change from a not-so-American-centric point of view. <laughs> and I think one of the best ways to start this miniseries is with uh, a very, very, very fantastic guest, the ambassador to the United States, from the small island nation of Barbados. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as we talked about, you know, Barbados is really uh, front and center in the climate change fight. I mean, you know, uh, for a large country like America, uh, you know, a lot of our issues with climate change aren't really going to see, uh, you know, drastic, drastic problems for another 50 or 100 years, um, you know, which is easy to push off. But uh, for island nations like Barbados, they have no choice but to act now. Um, you know, this problem is front and center for their country and their nation. Um, and, you know, a lot of island nations, and uh, they can't really ignore this problem or really not react immediately. You know, it's as pressing of a problem. Uh, it's a national security issue for them. Uh, and so they have to solve these issues now, and they really have to take the fight, uh, you know, to a lot of larger global institutions like the United Nations. Yeah, one of the best warriors on this front so far has been uh, the guest we're about to talk with. His name is Ambassador Selwyn Hart, like we said, from the Barbados to the United States. This guy has been at Kyoto. This guy was at the Paris Agreement uh, negotiations. This guy has seen it all. He was in the room where these deals were being cut, and he knows exactly, uh, you know, how the alliances form how the give and take works and you know how to advocate for the interests of a small island nation and for a group of small island nations uh, when going up against some of the big power players in the international arena. 
So with that, why don't we just talk to him? Yeah, guys, get ready. Fly on the world is about to take off. For being here uh, so I guess our first question is a lot of students you know have a you know maybe a sentence of what ambassadors do uh, but not a really great understanding of you know what your day-to-day -day life is like and um, you know what you're involved in so could you talk to us a little bit about that well thank you so much for having me um, I'm the ambassador for Barbados to the United States and I'm also the permanent representative of Barbados to the Organization of American States so I wear two hats. One is to promote and defend the interests of Barbados in the United States and this involves many things. It means promoting Barbados as a, a destination for uh, travel and investment in the United States. It also means um, looking at how we can strengthen our bilateral relationship with the United States in a, in a number of key areas. Uh, from trade and investment to energy, climate change, education, and um, it also and part of my role also involves looking after Barbadian nationals in this jurisdiction. As permanent representative to the Organization of American States, I um, also perform a similar role, but from a multilateral perspective, where I defend and promote the interests of Barbados at the Organization of American States. And those interests are mainly focused on the development pillar of the work of the organization. How can the Organization of American States um, support the, the development prospects of Barbados? Um, we're also in the midst of discussing difficult political issues mm -hmm. like the situation in Venezuela, which for Barbados is a priority issue, given that Venezuela is a close neighbor of Barbados. It's a country of over 30 million people, and any instability in that country has implications for the security of Barbados. So um, it's a, I'm representing a small country, so one has to be a, a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. um, I. I don't have a huge staff, so I have to do um, stuff myself, um, and also, and, and we also work closely with other Caribbean countries uh, uh, um, to support each other, being our, on the front lines of the fight against climate change. 60% of activity occurs within one mile of the coastline. Wow. So, um, extreme red events has a significant impact on the Caribbean. Climate change has already wreaked havoc um, on our coral reefs, which are a source of, of food, fisheries, and they also enhance our tourism. And estimated, or the losses uh, have been estimated at around $5 billion a year. Now, that's a drop in the bucket in the United <laughs> States. You know, that's uh, a mere drop in the bucket, but for, Island economies, uh, 
that's a huge deal yeah um some of the things that we are doing we are working much closely um sorry much closer together <laughs> as a region um we have a center called the caribbean community climate change center which coordinates the region's approach to climate change we're also integrating climate considerations into our budgetary processes and um, how we uh, plan development at the local level. And we're also moving to cleaner and renewable forms of energy. We're doing it for the climate benefits, but we're doing it for purely economic, um, but we're also doing it for um, economic reasons as well. So you've been kind of on the front lines of, you know, a lot of the deals. How do these conversations start? And, you know, how do these treaties and these alliances get made? It's a messy job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Negotiations to launch the Paris Agreement, um, those were launched in Durban, I think in 2011. Wow. Right? Um, however, the Durban meeting that launched the Paris negotiations was... Uh, that was just another milestone in over two decades of, of um, work on climate change. So it's certainly a long process from start to end to get you know, something out of it, you know? Exactly. And extremely so. So you have all these various interests, these competing interests, and everything comes together, right? Um, in a f negotiating text. Mm -hmm. so, um, in the lead up to Paris, that um, text grew to. Um, over 300 pages. Uh, most of the deal-making um, among a very, a smaller subset of countries who represent various interests. So in the climate negotiations, you have a number of different blocks. You have the, or interest groups, you have the group of 77 in China, which is a, a group of it's not 77 countries, <laughs> but about 130 developing countries. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little misleading you know. there. And the reason is that it was initially much less than that. Um, and every time a country was added, the number, the name of the group changed. <laughs> so when they got the 77, they said, you know, this is enough. <laughs> and this group is the umbrella group for all developing countries. But, but, but as you can imagine, Developing countries have now have um, different perspectives on climate change. You have the OPEC countries, which are oil-producing countries, and um, they might not necessarily want as ambitious agreement as possible. You have the island states who are on the front lines of climate change. They want the most ambitious agreement. Mm -hmm. You have fast-growing emerging economies, e economies like China, India, Brazil, South Africa, who... Um, or somewhere in the middle. They recognize the challenge and threat of climate change, but they also have um, economic interests. They, their economies need to grow their need. These countries need cheap sources of energy, lots of energy to keep that economic engine. Countries who are um, mainly who are very vulnerable to climate change and who are also vulnerable, but who need lots of energy to grow their economies, US as well, which was very constructive. Um, um, and then another block is the block of former Eastern, um, the, the, the Eastern European states who are not part of the European Union. So you have all these interests. So 
usually the country overseeing the process, the president of the COP, would um, holds informal meetings at usually at a ministerial level, and those informal meetings try to address difficult political issues, and the the rationale behind having those informal meetings is to provide political guidance to negotiators. The good thing is that we had 20 years of experience, right? So while the negotiations on the Paris Agreement only started in Durban in 2011, um, we got a really good agreement. Um, it worked out. Certainly. Uh, so it's power players in the room. So I want to hear how you went about as an advocate for Barbados and, and all the other countries. Right try to do is, well, I recognize very early that there's strength in numbers. Mm -hmm. you know, it's fine, small country, I would advocate, but FI was negotiating on, on behalf of, and CARICOM is 14 countries, AOSIS and are able to form a coalition, right? And the larger the coalition, there's strength in numbers. So as a negotiator, I would try to um, form a coalition with as many of the island states as possible. Um, in as much detail as possible with a view to convincing my other um, negotiators on the other side of the aisle um, to agree with some variation of our position. So gathering as many countries as possible to support you was key. Secondly, was to be engaged on all aspects of the negotiations, not only to focus on the issues that are important to you, but focus, have an understanding on what is important for um, other countries as well, so that you have bargaining chips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you're going into a complex negotiation, only focus on the issues that are important to you, that's a losing proposition. You need to use, dangle, hold hostage. Um, your issues. When I was in the Secretary General's team, um, he insisted, and, and, and you know, Ban Ki-moon is the most honorable. He is, um, when others told him not to be a champion on climate change, he said no. Um, he disregarded all the advice from his senior um, um, team, and he pressed the case for climate change. And one of the things that he would insist, um, whenever he had, because at major events like the General Assembly, he would always have a climate uh, discussion with a select group of heads of state and government. It's never made public, or never made public, but he would always ha he, 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 he would always have, it was either lunch or a dinner. Uh, so he would always have these events, and he would always insist that the islands we represented, right? He was of the view that all constituencies and voices um, were at the table. So, you know, it posed sometimes many complications for us because we said, you know, for example, we, you know, the sector, we just think this dinner should be 10, 15 leaders from big countries. We said, no. It's the island <laughs> representative, <laughs> you know, um, the president of Kiribati has to be there. Um, where's the African? Um, we need a representative voice. 
from Africa. So he would always um, insist that whatever group he assembled was representative of the um, 190 other um, countries that had to decide on the Paris Agreement. And it worked, because if you have a representative group of countries, um, if you have a group, that leader can help to sell um, understandings and agreements reached in a smaller setting. Wow. Um, so pivoting a little bit to uh, you know really the present day, uh, specifically you know President Trump has rolled back a lot of the environmental uh, regulations that President Obama put in, and is you know actively talking about pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on you know that effect on the long term uh, fight for climate change, and you know how does that affect your job? Well, if the U.S. pulls out, it will be devastating. Uh, I I can't say it diplomatically. It will be devastating for the fight against climate change. The U.S. leadership delivered the Paris Agreement. U.S. leadership ensured that the Paris Agreement was ambitious, and we need U.S. leadership to ensure that the rule book um, to implement the Paris Agreement is robust and meets the challenge of climate change. So it will be devastating if the U.S. pulls over the Paris Agreement. We're, we're really hopeful that despite the, the executive order that was um, recently issued, that, that there will be a reconsideration of um, how the U.S. approaches climate change. Um, we are, are hopeful that um, that the Clean Power Plan, for example, will not be abandoned, or there could be some variation to it, um, based on 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 all the information that I've seen. The the Clean Power Plan um, and the health benefits associated with the Power Plan are are astounding. It pre it, it will prevent ninety thousand um, um, cases of asthma. Um, and 1,700 um, It's. I really hope that the president and his team that they're seeing um, some of these facts. I also hope that they understand the full implications of not taking action on climate change, um, how it will impact on not only the U.S.'s standing in the world, but also how it will impact on U.S. citizens. Um, 123 million U.S. citizens live on the coastline. 50% of the gross domestic product of the U.S. Um, is, 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 is derived from economic activity um, along the coastline of the United States. So um, given what we know on climate change, um, um, I am hopeful that that the president would um, would would address climate change and, and quite frankly that he will listen to those voices um, uh, in the administration which have clearly identified climate change as a clear and present threat. Great, and just to wrap up, we have one final question and. 
this we like to ask most of our guests because you know we're students here at Georgetown. We talk to a student audience for the most part, uh, and we just want to get a little bit of your perspective on you know what can students do while they're in school to to take part in this fight. I, I'd like to say our fantastic managing director Justin is part of a great uh, a great organization called the Environmental Futures Initiative and yeah. the students again uh, students for climate security. Uh, so there are a lot of great organizations out there. But how do you actively take part in that fight uh, while still in college? Okay, um, it's a really great question, and it is up to you to speak up um, and uh, um, take action, um, raise raise awareness, do all those things that people your age, you know, you you know, you use social media, um, do everything to raise raise awareness about the imperative for taking action on on climate change, and take individual actions. Um, uh, as well, um, speak to your parents um, who might not necessarily um, understand the the um, real impact of of um, climate change. Um, but you, you know, this is your future. So so see it as um, a threat to your future because in reality, it it is a threat to your future. Many of the decisions that are being taken now. Um, will will have a devastating impact um, um, on the life that you and your children will lives even lives or even in this um, rich and powerful country. Great. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking this time. No, 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 not at all. I think it was really great. We learned <laughs> a lot. We learned quite a bit. Yeah, about yeah. Yeah. yeah, certainly very inspirational. So that was Ambassador Selwyn Hart, everybody. Thanks for listening in. Thank you guys so much for tuning into our first episode of uh, our little mini-series on climate change. And a big shout-out to uh, our friends at The Caravel for helping us out and really partnering with us in this endeavor. Yeah, they've been a great team helping us to, uh, get some amazing guests and promote these materials. Uh, and we couldn't be more excited to keep moving with Fly on the World with ideally a couple more episodes with some more cool ambassadors, some new regions to explore, some new issues to tease out as we sort of move into an uncertain time in the history of the fight against climate change. So it'll be very interesting to see, you know, what more we can learn uh, throughout the rest of the semester. Yeah, and if you guys like this episode, definitely check out our uh, Fly on the Wall episodes. Uh, you know, our last guest last week was uh, Mr. Cornell Belcher. We had a great conversation with him about polling and uh, race relations in the United States. So uh, we really appreciate him uh, and we really appreciate him coming on. Uh, check us out on uh, SoundCloud uh, Fly on the Wall. Uh, or you can follow us on Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, all Fly on the Wall Pod, uh, and we'd love to hear from you guys. So send us tweets, send us your pictures of you watching, uh, watching the episodes. We love doing picture series. Might uh, be a little weird, but it's fine. It's yeah, it's cool, dude. We take pictures too. We all take pictures. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely, you know, interact with us on social media. Find us on campus. We're always here. Yeah, and uh, make sure you listen in uh, to everything we have coming up next because we have some cool, cool stuff in the works before we all go home for summer break. Woo, summer where it's going to be, you know, 120 degrees because of climate change. Oh, God, we're so close, but so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Catch us next week. Uh, between the two of us, I think you're far more affected by climate change than I am. Why is that? Sunburns. 
Oh man, that's like so true. <laughs> you really, you really got screwed uh, oh on God. our Florida trip. Can you I were like, tell you? My mom listened to the episode we taped at the Florida trip. She texted me afterward and said, "So you admitted on the podcast that, that you got sunburned. I don't want to be like a, a poor sport here, but are you okay?" You know, my mom was concerned <laughs> about the fact that I admitted that I had sunburned. Now I know I'm going to get another text after uh, after this episode. You should, because you should wear more sunscreen. I wear, like, a good amount of sunscreen. You can attest, I, like, re-lathered myself, like, three times. Yeah, you're you're totally done in this life of climate change. <laughs> I give up.